Hello, everyone, and welcome to Azizi Podcast. My next guest is Gail Falkenthal. Gail is a strategic communication consultant. She specializes in crisis communication planning and response. She's also a boxing journalist and writes for Communities Digital News. Enjoy the show, everybody. And we're live. Gail, how's it going? Hey, Samir, great to be with you. Thank you so much. I so appreciate that you, you know, decided to allocate a little bit of your busy time from your busy schedule to be on my podcast. And uh, it, it, it just happened so randomly. We just sort of uh, texted uh, with each other on Twitter and uh, yeah, just decided to do this podcast. Hey, and there's I, no I, way I, to stop us. No <laughs> way to stop us. So folks, you've got us. Exactly. And by the way, congrats on your debut and on TMZ. That was so, <laughs> that was so funny. So cool. That was a crazy experience and I don't know if that would have happened with or without the whole current coronavirus situation but yeah. I when they reached out to me honestly I thought someone was trolling me <laughs> I didn't think they were for real and I checked it and I thought no this is this is really them okay. so this was in regards to the whole uh, uh, Floyd Mayweather's daughter um, case where she she got into some trouble with the uh, you know with the law basically and uh, yeah tell us tell us more about it I'd love to well hear. the funny thing is if it for those of your regular um, viewers listeners who uh, do not watch TMZ and live their daily news show uh, at the end of oh three or four of their reports they bring in people from outside the show, citizens, viewers, and as it turns out, me, and ask them to comment. And uh, they will sometimes interact with the hosts, sometimes not. They're from all over the United States. So they reached out to me, asked if I'd be interested, and I said, sure, I'll fine. You don't know what you're going to comment on, though, until the day of the show. They so they just ask you, like, hey, do you want to be on the show without uh, saying what are you going to talk yes. about? Yes, would you be willing to participate? And I said, sure. And when they, we fixed the date, uh -huh. uh, then they get in touch with you at 6.30 Pacific time. In the morning. Uh, so be ready to go. And they give you the show lineup. Here are our topics today. Pick three in order that you'd like to talk about. And sure enough, the situation with Floyd's daughter, Ayana, came up and I said, oh, yeah, that will be number one. And I think the others involved Tyler Perry and Demi Lovato and some stuff like that. Well, funny enough, they assigned me the Floyd, you know, Floyd's daughter story. So right. uh, you then do all your technical checks. And then while the show is running live, they Skype you in. And at the point that you're um, asked to comment, you are watching Charles and Harvey, the co-hosts, chatter, mm -hmm. and producer cues you and you leave your comment. So I thought, you know, I might as well have some fun with this. And, right. And, uh, and the back, the back story is that Floyd's daughter stabbed uh, uh, um, another person, basically, over Floyd's some daughter, domestic incident. Yana, or, or Yaya, as a lot of people know her, stabbed her fiancé's baby mama. <laughs> so yeah. right there we already have a very messy situation like a, a set up for a conflict came out right right so my comment was come on didn't you learn anything from your father the only thing you should ever fight for is money and um but it's the way you said it you're like money <laughs> i went right at him right so i thought you know let's just do the whole tmz thing that I, was so gangster <laughs> that you said that all in right all in so 
my proudest moment was when Harvey Levin nearly uh, choked on himself. He almost fell from the chair. Rears <laughs> way back, and I thought my job is done. So, it was great. It was such, it's so I mean, cool. Like so random. So apparently they do watch people on Twitter, and if you uh, talk about either popular culture, sports, they do a lot of sports right. um, celebrity journalism actually, and. From my serious perch now as somebody who teaches journalism and public relations and who used to be a broadcaster, mm -hmm. TMZ, for all the jokes and you know shade thrown at them, mm -hmm. TMZ plays journalism absolutely by the traditional rules. All their information is sourced. They mm -hmm. don't report rumors. They don't report gossip without somebody saying this is what I know or finding it in paperwork. And because mm -hmm. Harvey Levin, the host and founder, is a lawyer mm -hmm. and he knows how to go through court records. Mm -hmm. So they have people sitting on all the major court systems in the United States where celebrities would, you know, get in trouble. Mm -hmm. LA, Vegas, New York, probably Miami, probably San Francisco, you know, you can think of a few. So they are very good at what they do and they don't ever get sued. I, I, I tell you all, watch and think about it. You'll never see TMZ in the news because the celebrity sued them uh, right. for slandering them because they're generally right. Yeah, usually when they report right. something, you, you sort of like you right away assume that it's true. Like you take it and as a fact. And you'll see mainstream media pick it up. So isn't you know, that crazy? The most trusted media TMZ. <laughs> right. <laughs> no, isn't that true? It really is true. But they follow traditional rules of journalism, which is, as I was taught, you know, and I'm very old school in this way, mm -hmm. you don't report a rumor until you can turn it into a fact, which means there's paperwork, there mm -hmm. are public records, there's someone willing to say, this is true. Now, once in a while, someone will say, I witnessed such and such. I witnessed mm -hmm. Leonardo DiCaprio coming out of a bar drunk. Mm -hmm. Okay. And maybe that turns out to not be true, but that's not TMZ's fault. They have a source. It's right. the source's fault. So mm -hmm. as long as you have somebody there willing to say, this is true, and, and they are very good about just not taking someone's word, they'll try to figure out, well, was he in fact at the bar? Mm-hmm. Or is there any security footage? Or they'll go out on Twitter and Instagram and say, hey, was anybody at the Sunset Bar last night? And right, right. Quick investigation. Video or photos of Leonardo DiCaprio. Um, <laughs> and that stuff, you know, it's crazy. We're all mm -hmm. on camera all the time. So, Do you think there's more uh, paparazzis right now or less? I feel like there's less paparazzis right now because we have, everyone has a cell phone and pretty much everyone took paparazzi's job I, now. I don't know a lot about their business. I wouldn't pretend to, but I do know that it is much harder to make a living at it. Yes. And right, right now they are hurting. There's nobody out there. What? Right. There's nobody to even follow around. Most of this, this behavior is going on behind closed doors or. Oh well, yeah. Cause everyone is freaking out. Everything well, is in public now. Everyone's, everyone's playing it out. safe. Well, Crime is that's true too. That, that's the problem. The paparazzi literally have almost no one to follow around. And they've talked, you know, they have talked about it. And I have read interviews with mm -hmm. some of them saying, you know, we're one of those industries that's really hit hard by this. So 
That's so no, true. I'm going to need some kind of paycheck protection program. <laughs> that's a, I, and I feel like they they would be qualified. I I would assume so. But that's that's As so true. Contractors, I suppose so. Yeah. Yeah, uh, because it's a strange world, right? I mean, it's ridiculous. And and speaking of about lack of content, we're we're saying like, oh, there's no content in boxing, but there's no content anywhere. There's no content in the, you know, Hollywood gossiping or Hollywood news or entertainment news. No one's doing anything. So how can you report on something? You know, the celebrities are out. They're active on social media. Um, sports, a lot of sports figures are, and it's very smart for them to do that. Everybody who, you know, makes their living in part by being visible, this is not the time to let off the gas. They need right. to continue being visible, being creative. Just before we started this conversation, I was watching on Instagram Live a live dance party hosted by Diddy. <laughs> <laughs> That's um, awesome. Which is raising money for healthcare workers. And he's got it set up at his house. So first of all, you get to get kind of a look around at the house. Yeah. Yeah. Kids are all there. Um, he's got a DJ. It's sounding great. Nice. He was starting an interview while I, before I left um, with a healthcare worker, mm -hmm. uh, I believe in the Bronx or in Brooklyn, can't remember which one, telling mm -hmm. her story, uh, mm -hmm. reminding people to be careful, reminding um, you know, people to, uh, that this, this thing is for real and it's bad, don't take it lightly, mm -hmm. and it doesn't matter who you are, it doesn't matter what your age is. Mm -hmm. So there was a lot of fun involved. His name's out there. Yeah, but he's famous for his parties too. Getting out there, right? So good for him. Yeah. Um, this week's Saturday Night Live was uh, a Zoom home contributed pieced together show. And how smart for all the celebrities that participated. Tom Hanks hosted from his home. Chris How's Martin. he doing? Seems to be fine. Yeah. Seems to be fine. Gosh. He said, you know, I guess I'm, you know, America's you know, most famous COVID-19 patient because he was really one of the first celebrities, right? Yeah, it was so him yeah. and Idris Elba. Yeah, yeah, right, right. Oh, that killed me. Anyway. <laughs> <laughs> well, he's fine though. I, like, oh, oh, <laughs> <laughs> but speaking well, of those, not, not every sort of publicity stunt like that on, on social media with, uh, you know, staying at home was like well-praised. For example, have you, do you know about Gal, Gal Gal Gadot uh, Imagine song and how it was highly criticized. What do you think about it? I mean, it was a little cringe. You know, <laughs> yeah. Everybody who's in that position, here I just talked about, it's very important for them to be visible. Right. But it's very important for them to be visible in a supportive way or in an entertaining way mm. and not to uh, hold themselves out as... Um, trying to tell anybody what to do or, um, you know, you see a lot of first world problems kind of whining going on. Um, right. that, that's not the time. Yeah. Right. It was very ill received. It was also very early on when a lot of this, I think was a little more raw for people mm -hmm. um, and companies really need to watch this too. Um, you know, we've all gotten dozens and dozens of emails from, any company we've ever done business with, and mm -hmm. maybe quite a few we never have, and we think, well, why did I get that? Right. Uh, saying the safety of our employees is our highest priority, you know, and everything sounds exactly the same. Yeah, very dry. Yeah. Um, yeah, folks, I, I get it. 
that you feel compelled to communicate with your audience mm -hmm. or your mm -hmm. wannabe audience. Um, but give us some useful information. Mm -hmm. Are you still open? Are your hours changed? Are you mm -hmm. accepting, um, are you extending your return policy? If we buy online, do we That's get 180 days instead of 90 days to return something? Or do you have contactless pass-offs? Um, that's the useful information. If I need to ship a package, which I did the other day, all I want to know is my usual vendor um, in my area open. Mm -hmm. I, I checked. Thankfully, they maintain good, up-to-date information on their website, and it was it was right on target. Went down, took care of it. My business. So, yeah. do you think? Do you think? Like speaking of that, you know, trying to put out a conscious message without really putting your first world problem problems out there. Do you think <laughs> Gal Gadot had like a manager or an agent, or like she has like a PR team that kind of said like, "Let's do Imagine Thong with all the celebrities. It's going to be great." You or know, she... no, I think they're all going stir crazy at home, just like everybody else, and they know how to use these tools. And most mm -hmm. of the time. You know, in the normal universe, they're perfectly fine working on these things themselves, uh, being authentic, right? That's what mm -hmm. everyone wants. So I'm sure she, I'm sure she had her heart in the right place, mm -hmm. but it was very tone deaf and that can happen. She should have acknowledged it right away. She did. Uh, she got it. And occasionally somebody is going to do that. You apologize. You move on. But the most important thing is, did you learn something from it? Did you, right. did, don't, don't repeat that mistake. No mistake should ever be repeated. You, know, you don't want it to happen twice. If you're going to make a mistake, make a whole brand new one. That's okay. <laughs> But it's, gonna, it's going to happen. It, this is new territory for everybody. So let's talk about PR, right? Public relations. I feel like everyone sort of says it. Everyone's talking about it. Bad PR, good PR, you know, uh, How do you say this? Bad PR is a good PR or something like that. But not, I don't think all everyone... Publicity is, all publicity is good publicity or the, the other no... saying is there's no such thing as bad publicity. Exactly. And yes, there is. <laughs> to tell you, yes, there is. <laughs> so let's talk to you as a professional. What exactly is uh, PR, public relations, and uh, what does it entail? It's a funny thing. So many people don't, aren't quite sure what it's all about. And they do think, oh, publicity. You, you just want people out there known or it's media relations. You just want to get people on TV or in the newspapers or on TMZ or something. Mm -hmm. It's more than that. It, it's the fault of our profession that we've done a, such a bad job defining it. But essentially, we are uh, engaging in a two-way conversation with mm -hmm. our audiences. That's what it's about. We want to engage the people we're interested in communicating with, customers, donors, board of directors, your employees frequently. You want to start that conversation um, about whatever your business proposition is, whatever your nonprofit is about, what are you about as a person or a brand. And then the important thing is to get the feedback from that audience. Is the message well-received? Do they understand it? Do they have questions? You want to engage them in a dialogue. That's where it's different from marketing. Marketing is a megaphone. Marketing just blasts it out there and 
if they're smart, yes, they do see what the reaction is, but mm -hmm. it's not a two-way conversation in the same way. And it's also, in theory, communication that's paid for. You're paying for the space. You're paying for the airtime. You're paying for the page. Um, right. So there's, I hate to use this phrase anymore in America, but there's a quid pro quo, right? Uh, we give you money and we expect access in some way. And that extends even to things like market uh, influencers. Now mm -hmm. we want access to your audience um, because they believe you and trust you and like you and mm -hmm. hear what you have to say. Um, it can involve paid social media. There's a lot of things that filtered in thanks to technology. But the, but the big divide in theory has mm -hmm. been that marketing is one one directional public relations is two directional is more of a conversation and in my opinion and this is my opinion entirely from the way i operate okay. it's much more about storytelling which is what i've always wanted to do i started first as a journalist which is not uh, unusual for a lot of public relations people and there really isn't in a lot of ways a difference between the objective of journalism to tell a story and public relations to tell a story. It's just that you're serving different ends. That's the only difference. The story still needs to be compelling, correct, uh, you know, and it should have a call to action. Right. So let, let's talk about uh, if, if we're like, because I, I, I'm very passionate about sports and industry of, of sports and what's happening behind the scenes. If, you know, I'm an athlete or I'm, an, I'm a sports organization, uh, what kind of PR uh, do I need and how do I go about the public relationships? And what's the sort of like A, B, and C? Of, so uh, in, in sports, your commodity is either a team mm -hmm. or say in boxing, it's an individual. And you want to establish a relationship between that team or that individual with the fans, with the followers, uh, and sometimes with other entities, businesses that want to align themselves with that, uh, that athlete or that team. Mm -hmm. So again, it's, it's two-way conversation and it's relationship building. So to me, the most important thing to do is establish, you know, what's that athlete, what's that team all about? from a brand perspective, from a personality perspective. Let, let the fans in, let the businesses in who want to align themselves, that would be it a sports apparel company or um, any other commodity that might want to align themselves. Right. And establish that relationship so that a fan or an outside brand believes they know them believes they understand them and their story. Uh, I think one of the reasons that many people are passionate about boxing, which I certainly mm -hmm. am, every single fighter has a story. Every single one has a story about how they, how they rose up to whatever uh, level they've gotten to as right. an amateur, you know, up through the Olympics, say, or as a professional. And they're very compelling personalities. So for somebody like me, it makes them very interesting to work with. There is a lot to work with. Um, some are obviously uh, much more engaging and interesting and interested in participating than others. You have somebody at uh, the extreme end like a Floyd Mayweather, like um, 
uh, I've tried to think of who else might be out there quite a bit. Keith Thurman in his heyday was just, you know, what about very, a- Adrian Broner? Adrian Broner. Oh gosh, for good or ill, unfortunately. Yes. Um, true. Funny. I just saw his post fight interview with uh, Jim Gray after the Pacquiao fight popped up on my feed last <laughs> day and like a train wreck. I watched it again. I saw it live and I just, Oh my God. Oh, I'm thinking, man, um, right now you've got somebody like Blair Cobbs who's signed to golden boy promotions, Blair, the the Blair right? And <laughs> First of all, Blair has the most head-spinning backstory imaginable. If you're watching this and don't know who Blair Cobbs is, B-L-A-I-R Cobbs, C-O-B-B-S, Google the name and find a story about his biography. It's, it's hard to believe it's true, but you couldn't make it up. Not even the most talented scriptwriter could make it up. And Blair's um, hero from his childhood um, is Ric Flair. So he's Blair the Flair, the boxing version, with the trademark, woo! Yes, and he always does that. <laughs> he's a talker. He's engaging. He's a good-looking guy. The truth is, his skills are eh, okay. Right. He's, he's not a Virgil Ortiz Jr. <laughs> mm-hmm. He's not an Earl Spence. I'm just saying. But you can't take your eyes off the man. Provides good TV. He's great TV. He's great promoting a fight he'll do an interview at the drop of a hat he's on twitter he's on instagram he dresses crazy Um, those outfits are crazy that's for sure i mean yeah he's gold he's gold from a public relations standpoint so let's provide some examples in boxing you know like he he is getting good fights and decent checks because he's engaged in the whole public relations uh, game. So what kind of public, public relation, relations actions are taken by uh, boxers in, in the current times right now? Who do you think are doing, who is doing a good job? What actually needs to be done currently uh, for boxers in the boxing industry? What is a good PR in boxing and what is like a, an actual uh, effective PR in boxing right now? First and foremost, they should be active on social media. Most of them coming up now, you know, any active fighter who's you know, much under 40, should know what they're doing on social media. You know, this is not new to them. Mm -hmm. They need to stay engaged with their fans. Um, They need to put out content of themselves at home, with their kids, with their pets, doing their workouts at their home gym, um, whatever it takes to stay visible. But then it's up to their promoters, their managers, to help facilitate some of these things and use the bigger platform the promoters have and mm-hmm. the networks have to get beyond just, oh, okay, those are the 800,000 people who follow so-and-so. Uh, PBC right now is doing a fairly good job. They, it took them a while to get up to speed, I will mm-hmm. say, mm-hmm. but they're starting to let um, different fighters do a social media takeover of their channel which has a lot more followers, right? That's true, yeah. So uh, Wednesdays and Fridays, they allow one of their guys to take over, uh, do live media, answer questions. Uh, there are a lot of things they can do. Um, they are also doing an interview series. Their announcer um, and color commentator, Ray Flores, is doing new interviews, which are dropping every week. 
they do a podcast weekly, same thing. So uh, about a week and a half ago, a week ago Friday, one of the first ones I saw was, of all people, Andre Berto. Okay, you know, not, you know, he's, he's had a, a wonderful career, right. um, you know, not at the very top of their food chain, but here's Andre. He was also on their podcast the same week. And this was Andre cooking lunch for his family in his home in Las Vegas where he lives. And you think, okay, that's kind of odd. Mm-hmm. But it was riveting because, first of all, here's Andre in his home, and the man has a commercial-grade kitchen in his home. It's stunning. Who knew? But, right. you know, anybody who knows what I'm talking about, Viking appliances, everything built to match custom, huge, amazing. He's really so his doing his barbecue. Wife, well, it wasn't barbecue. He was doing uh, a sautéed shrimp linguine that was, oh, wow. oh, I was Nikki was killing me. I was hungry. And it was new <laughs> on the West Coast. So his wife is reading questions from fans <laughs> live on Facebook Watch, as it turns out, as he's cooking. And it was delightful. Absolutely delightful. That's what they need to be doing. Right, so they're actually providing that content because again, we need to like remember there's no fights, there's nothing, nothing is available, and the fans, boxing fans, they need to to stay engaged with the actual athletes. And how can you do this when there is no boxing ring, when there is no promotion, when there is no press tour? And uh, let's be honest, it's it's really hard to engage your promoter to invest some of the production money on on something you know, unrelated right. to boxing, but more of like an, a brand development. So you have to but do it this yourself. This is what they're doing normally anyway. And mm-hmm. they just, you know, I, I do understand these are, you know, rough times for everybody, but they need to be ready to come right out of the gate and have the fans still there with them by mm-hmm. staying active and staying engaged. The other thing that's starting to happen in conjunction with some of the networks, um, with the promoters who have an extensive video vault who still retain the rights to those fights are starting to air these things, right? So for example, last week, finally, we're starting to see Top Rank open up its video vault, which goes back decades and aired a seven hour, eight fight heavyweight marathon going back to uh, the rumble in the jungle and the thriller in Manila kicked it off. So you had a series of Alley fights. You had Alley Spinks three in addition to those. And then it gradually shifted over to a Mike Tyson series of fights, including the Buster Douglas fight, um, his first fight against Trevor Burbick, which is his first championship fight, which not a lot of people remember. Right. And ended with Holyfield Foreman, which honestly was a far better fight than I remembered. And <laughs> it was it was great stuff, fun to watch. You know, the theme hung together. You could sort of come in and out all evening. Smart thing to do. Right. Showtime, a couple weeks ago, decided also to do their version with their video vault. And the first uh, programming they decided to offer was the incredibly crazy trio of fights between Israel Vasquez and Rafael Marquez in the mid-2000s. Most people know the Vasquez-Marquez series. Mm -hmm. And the WBC learned about this and decided, "Uh, you know, we can get in on this. 
And so they set up a live Zoom, you know, hookup uh, uh, that was funneled through Facebook Watch so fans could watch. Right, right. I've, I've seen one of those. About a half dozen of us boxing writers together with Israel Vasquez watching his own fights. And we're at doing Q&A as we are all watching together with him, asking him about things that had happened in the ring. You know, how did this go down? How did you find this? And talked mm-hmm. about um, how he saw Marquez. And, uh, you know, that third fight was a brutal, brutal 12-round fight. I mean, just viciously hard. And one of the writers said, so Izzy, how'd you feel after? I mean, it's incredible to ask questions. Rounds of just getting pummeled. Man, it was just brutal. He did win the fight by majority decision. He said, man, weren't you hurting? I mean, how were you even standing up at the end of that fight? He said, you know, at the end of the fight, I didn't feel a thing because of the adrenaline, right? Right. He said, but two hours later, man, I was hurting. <laughs> you know Absolutely. that's that's fun to uh, to talk about. And two of the three fights took place in Carson at the then Home Depot Center, later the StubHub Center. Now it's you know Dignity, Dignity Health Park something Park or something. I don't know what. We all going to call it StubHub to our dying day. <laughs> there was a suggestion by Steve Kim of ESPN mm-hmm. that um, just like the Staples Center in Los Angeles has bronze statues of its very famous athletes there, that why isn't there a statue pair of Vasquez and Marquez? Because those fights really did put that venue on the map. Those Mm -hmm. were the first really big, spectacular fights. And two of the three fights were the fight of the year in 2007, 2008. I think that's a great idea. So we asked Vasquez, hey, will you? What do you think about that? You know, and he, he let, he's a very humble guy. He's 45 now. He lives in LA. He's not in the best of health, but he, he looked pretty good. Um, mm. We asked him and he laughed and he said, well, okay. Yeah, that, that'd be kind of cool. Yeah, that, that'd be great. He said, but if they do it, I want it to be from the first fight. Well, the first fight was the one of the three that he lost, mm. that he lost. And we said, why do you want it to be from the first fight? He said, because I didn't quit. I didn't quit. So in his view, it was victory for him. In his view, it was a victory over the fact that he had a broken nose from the second round in. Uh, There were attempts to stop the fight numerous times, and he waved his corner off. Now, you know, what's the wisdom of that down the road? You know, the man has lost an eye over the accumulated damage he Mm -hmm. is had done to him um, over the years because, you know, these were two classic Mexican blood and guts warriors. Mm -hmm. So that to him was more important. That tells you a lot about a guy. That's the kind of stuff that for any fan watching completely ties you in to that Mm -hmm. athlete and makes you a follower, a dedicated follower. And for a current athlete, somebody who's still fighting, you're going to watch. You're going to buy that memorabilia. You're going to wear that T-shirt. You're going to buy tickets. That's what they need. And that pay-per-view. Or subscribe to the streaming services they're on. That's what has got to happen. 
Absolutely. And Gail, I see that you're so engaged in boxing. I, I see you during the interviews and I've, you know, you put out so many articles about boxing. You're just, you know, you are, I, th- I would say you're the queen of uh, the writing medium of content because you just have so many articles and you just keep pumping them out because it's not even boxing related, but you, you write so much. And I'm, I'm, I'm like, I'm, I'm, it's, it's amazing how you just like can keep it up because uh, I don't know. I don't know anyone who does the same thing. You know, riding is a lot like boxing and it, you, you train like you want to fight. So there's no substitute to, there's no real mystery to being a good writer beyond practice. The more you read, the more you write, the more you read, the more you write, the more you write, the better you get at it. I mean, there's just no substitute. It's, and I've, I've written my share of things I look back on and think, well, that was wasn't my best work or gosh, I could have expressed that better. And writing on deadline is sort of its own animal. uh, And a lot of boxing is, is done that way. But again, that's the storytelling portion. The story should never be about me. There are a lot of boxing writers that, you know, or, or journalists uh, and now YouTubers, shall we say, (laughs) who um, it's more about them. You know, right. they've got me on camera or there's a lot of I, I, I'm, mm-hmm. I'm this, I, that, I think this, this is, you know. I've noticed you, yeah, t- uh, you, you take a stab at them it's yeah. from time to time. Yeah, you, you need to get out of the way. You need to be invisible. Mm-hmm. You're the platform. You're the observer. You're putting yourself in the fan's viewpoint. Mm-hmm. It's as if the fan, the reader is talking to them, not me. I'm... I'm their translator, if you will. I'm taking what they say and observing the things they can't see, the body language, the um, facial expressions, the setting. Um, You know, what's the context of the interview? Have they just finished training? Are they at home? Are they, you know, who knows, at the end of a long day and they're tired? You know, we're human beings. Um, And they're as human as any human beings get. And again, that's a lot of what's so compelling. And mm-hmm. sometimes it's somebody extremely admirable um, with a tremendous work ethic. And sometimes it's Adrian Broner, you know, <laughs> and there you go. I like Adrian Broner. He provides, uh, oh, I don't know, he provides a lot I, of entertainment. I have, well, I, have, I have called him out. He's one of the few I've really taken to task publicly, but yeah. <laughs> but, the, but that's i mean that's uh that's not to say that i approve of uh, anything that he does outside the ring because of course those no. things makes, hey, needs to be. sometimes guys get eyes on them for the wrong reasons and mm-hmm. they want to play the heel or the fool and yeah what i don't like is that he's undisciplined frequently mm-hmm. and he has squandered a lot of natural talent and i think that's such a shame you know on the one hand you've got somebody who really gets absolutely the maximum amount of whatever skill they've got. And again, mm-hmm. I'm going to go back to Blair Cobbs. Mm-hmm. You know, he works it hard. He isn't the most naturally skilled boxer in the world, but he works it hard. Broner, he's thrown a lot of it away, and that's such a shame. You know what I'm hearing right now is Gervonta Davis is being compared to Broner a lot because he is sort of a, a train wreck himself outside the ring in, in the recent uh, months. Uh, what do you think about that? And uh, I mean, he definitely is someone who needs a good PR right now or yeah. some sort of a management. He, of there's that. alarm bells going off in that young man's life. Um, some very troubling things. Uh, again, you know, we're all on camera a lot. You know, if you are around people, we aren't right now, 
But if you're out in public, you know, in the days to come, eyes are on you. You really need to think about that. Eyes are on you when you're somebody like Davis or any famous athlete. Um, not that it gives you a pass to pull these stunts in private either, mm -hmm. but you know, how stupid do you have to be to rough up a young woman who's with you at a public venue mm -hmm. and then get called out for it? I mean, yes, absolutely. But speaking yeah, somebody needs to talk to him about, you know, you are going to squander potentially a very lucrative career and a legacy for years to come. I had a long conversation not that long ago with Bernard Hopkins about legacy. That's what he talks to all the young fighters about in the Golden Boy stable is legacy. How do you want people to see you down the road? That's a really hard thing for a 20-year-old or a 22-year-old to think about. But by God, you've got to get it into their head that they're going to live with these mistakes a long, long time. And, you know, if nothing else, you need to talk to them about the bottom line, whatever it takes to communicate. Right, because at You're the end of the day, it translates, in, it translates it into money. It does. And it's also going to translate in less sponsorship opportunities. You know, a lot of, not a lot of brands are going to want to align themselves with you. And that's where the real money and lasting money can be. Look at the brands that have aligned themselves with Canelo Alvarez, who's squeaky clean, who frankly is so careful about his public image that he sometimes comes off a little too stiff or scripted. He's mm -hmm. very, very careful about what he says. He really thinks about what he says. Um, getting him in an unguarded moment is rare, and, um, and it's a joy, frankly. It really is. I wish he'd do it some more. But that's where a brand like Hennessy or Takati aligns themselves with him. And, you know, that money's still coming in, whether he fights or not. Now, of course... <laughs> Canelo is not going to need any Paycheck Protection Act anytime <laughs> soon. Um, That's what it is, yeah. But, but those are the guys smart enough to start getting the sponsorship deals, the athletic wear brands. He was with Under Armour for a long, long time. That's the smart thing to do. You know, another thing during this coronavirus times uh, kind of was sort of embarrassing and, and really disappointing to see is Billy Joe Sanders. Have you seen that video of him punching the bag and talking about beating up women? This was, oh. I, 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 for me, it was unbearable oh. how he came up with that and who allowed him to do this. Like Billy who was holding Joe, that camera? Yeah. Billy Joe Saunders um, has displayed his bad behavior um, more than once and certainly long before this. You know, there's, um, I believe it's this uh, is a quote attributed to the author Toni Morrison, which is when somebody tells you who you, when someone tells you who they are, believe them. Well, Billy Joe Saunders has told us over and over what a cab he is, what a reprehensible human being he is. And the only thing he can retreat to is, well, I was just kidding. Mm -hmm. Oh, I was just kidding. At least he didn't follow it up with, can't you take a joke? which is what most bullies say when they're caught out and called out for something like this. Um, you know, he gets away with it because he's making money for people. He's a talented athlete, but he's starting to burn bridges to the point they are, they're really going to crumble. 
he's probably lost a fight with Canelo over it. You think that's so? Very, I do. And I think that's a very expensive mistake because he was meant to be the kind of the killing time fight early this year. Um, acceptable to Canelo, the right weight, gets him in front of the UK audience, which is certainly not a bad thing for him to do. Very smart thing mm -hmm. in his brand building, not a huge threat. Um, might not be the most exciting fight in the world, uh, but we would see which version of Billy Joe came out. But as the clock ticks, Canelo doesn't really need him anymore for this purpose. Then he needs to think about, well, you know, do I put him off at the end of the calendar and maybe he's next year's kickoff fight? Well, he doesn't need him and he certainly doesn't need this. Canelo is not interested in any whiff of bad behavior or scandal. He just won't tolerate it. And I don't think he wants to deal with this. So Billy Joe uh, has done this more than once. As we know, he's, he's sort of the Adrian Broner of Great Britain, I think, at this point. Yeah. Uh, uh, I mean, what was he thinking? But I'll tell you, sometimes when you're advising and working with clients, you play a role very similar to an attorney or any other advisor. Our job is to give our clients the best possible advice and explain why, based on what we know, based on our experience. But you know what? Your client is free to ignore you. And they do. They do all the time. People ignore their lawyers. People ignore their accountants. People ignore their public relations professionals' advice. And nothing we can do about it. Sometimes your job is merely to hold on tight to the other end of the leash. And eventually, as a professional, you have to decide do I still want to maintain a relationship with this person who, A, won't listen to me, just frankly rather insulting when it happens over and over? I mean, why are you paying me money to ignore right. me? It's kind of stupid. <laughs> really, just from a practical standpoint, why are you bothering to pay me if you don't want to take my advice? Once mm -hmm. in a while, you're going to have a disagreement with the client on a way to go, and you should have an honest two-way dialogue about that. But clearly, Billy Joe Saunders doesn't listen to anybody but himself, and he's not the kind of client I would ever, ever work with, ever. Never. But, and by the way, did I say never? Never. <laughs> Speaking of which, you know, I was talking to uh, Jay Chandri. He's a, he's a producer here in Toronto, and he works with, uh, yes. with boxings and boxing media. He advises about that. Uh, we, we started talking about boxing managers, and, and he told me that the situation is really dire in terms of who is representing a boxer like a manager. Uh, what do you think about current situation about how do boxers choose their managers? And basically, what qualities do you think a manager should possess to be, to be a useful and, uh, you know, a, just a professional manager? Well, unfortunately, a lot of these guys pick a manager when they're young, right? And most of the decisions we make in life at 19 or 20 or 22 aren't always the best. And how do they know to, how to research somebody and interview them and look at their resume and talk to their other clients? No. Generally, their promoter has people they like to work with, they introduce them. Or they ask another guy in the gym. Or their family friend. Or they're a buddy and they don't know a darn thing about the business. You really should be hiring somebody that's half a camp counselor. It's never a bad idea if they're a lawyer or have some other sort of um, 
serious business experience. Um, but, you know, unfortunately, boxers, boxing is full of a lot of hangers-on and wannabes. Mm -hmm. And, you know, they think it's fun and glamorous. And, you know, it does beat working at Walmart, let's face it. <laughs> and, you know, they get to be friendly with somebody. And right. the fighter feels comfortable. They're a confidant. But, you know, you really shouldn't have a manager who's your friend. It's like mm -hmm. being friends with your parents. You know, it's nice if you're friends with your kids. But that's not really your job. And sometimes they're going to hate you right. and because you got to speak the truth and you've got to be tough for their own good. A good manager does that frequently. And that's the manager that can save someone from themselves from making a big mistake and make money for everybody in the right way without exploitation and without hurting this person who's risking a lot to pursue this sport. What, is the, what are the main things that a manager should uh, provide? What are the main services that manager provides uh, to a boxer these days? They really should advise them legally. If they're not an attorney, they should have one that they interact with. You know, boxing is a lot about contracts. You know, contract law sounds pretty boring to a lot of people, even a lot of law students. You know, the class they hate the most is contracts. But a, a smart athlete has somebody who knows contracts very well, uh, who's you know, smart enough to think those things through, is looking out for their health, their safety, and their long-term best interests. Not the payday today, not the payday tomorrow, but how are you going to be set up for that day you walk away from the ring and have another 30, 40 years on the planet? How are you going to invest your money? How are you going to represent yourself and your legacy? Uh, some boxers are smart enough to do it on their own, but it is a smart idea to have an, a manager which occasionally can play the bad guy for you and the intermediary without ruining your relationship with the promoter and the other people. I'll tell you one of the best at it, I'm gonna go back to him, is Bernard Hopkins. Bernard is very, very smart about his business. You know, most people know Bernard made some very serious mistakes as a young man and ended up in prison and really developed his boxing skills starting while he was incarcerated. He got out, and the famous story is as he walked out the gates, one of the guards said, hey, Bernard, good luck, and uh, we'll see you again soon. And he stopped and said, what do you mean? Oh, all you guys come back. And he vowed that was never going to happen. And he turned into this disciplined, relentless machine in training, in his personal habits, and he invested virtually every dollar he ever made. There's nobody that owns more property, I think, in boxing than Bernard. Oh, I mean, I didn't know that. He's an absolute real estate titan. Wow. So his money's all working for him. He was smart not to let himself. Um, take too much punishment in the ring. You know, sometimes it made for a boring fight here and there. You know, Bernard is very much a technician, a hit and don't get hit kind of guy. He's not a come forward guy like Israel Vasquez. And he is still working. He's now working as an executive at Golden Boy. And it says a lot about his career. And to this, to this day, he still eats like he's training. He's still in the gym. Uh, 
you know, you see him and you think, damn, he could get back in the ring right now, right now. And I believe he's now 55 or six years old. Wow. If you ever have a chance to be up close to Bernard, get a good look at him and chat with him. Yeah, truly, you know, you think he could probably walk back in the ring today. And I'll tell you who else could do that and also looks pretty good. Um, and he is now 57, is Julio Cesar. I knew that you are going to say that. Yeah. Senior looks great. And Senior, you know, he loves to grind it in on us, right? He shows himself off in the gym. Yeah, he, he, like he posted a picture of his six-pack. Oh, my God. <laughs> what are you killing me, man? Um, the last thing I saw from him, he was running on his treadmill. Uh-huh. I've never run that fast in my life, let alone at 57. Are you crazy, man? And what the <laughs> hell happened to your son? But that's another story. <laughs> yeah, that's, you know, that's another PR case right there because I don't you know, know in what's, many what's ways, happening I feel there. very sorry for Junior. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was a nearly impossible assignment from day one for him to ever live up to his father's name. There's just no way. There's mm-hmm. just... Ne- it was never, ever going to happen. But, you know, he, it was a path that was sort of frictionless for him and easy and made easy for him. And that's the problem. It was made too easy. And he lacked the hunger and discipline it takes for most of these guys, you know, to achieve what they do. Most boxers who are successful do not come from an affluent background because they have options. It's right. really rare you have a college graduate or uh, you know somebody who came from a middle class background. You know somebody like Chris Algieri who's got his master's degree, who was a oh college ath- college athlete. Um, occasionally you'll have guys like Steve Cunningham, uh, Seth Mitchell, the heavyweight, who. Uh, were college football players or basketball players and they blow out a knee and they still want to compete. They turn to boxing, um, which is part of the reason we don't have a lot of high level heavyweights who are Americans. Mm-hmm. They have other options. They go into the NBA. Right. The More NFL. lucrative deals. Yep. Lucrative deals. And, you know, frankly, they don't have to work quite that hard and they True. aren't getting pummeled for a living like boxers are. So they think, man, you know, it's, it's still work to train as a professional athlete in another, sto- in another sport, but it is not boxing. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, that's yeah. what happens. And, and, and in Julio Cesar Chavez Jr.'s defense, I mean, he, for all his, uh, you know, privileges that he received, you know, in his life, you know, being a son of such a legend, he still achieved the level of the elite boxer. It's just he, he never really performed did. at the very, very top. But that's well, still a lot, you know. I, you know, yeah. you wouldn't see that a lot. Well, again, you know, he had, he had his father's DNA. He did. He had a lot of natural talent. He just didn't have the work ethic. And you, you really, if you are going to pick skill versus work ethic, I'll take work ethic every single time. True. True. Gail, I wanted to ask you, because I saw you working, you know, with my own eyes. Do you have any sort of a special technique when you want to talk to a boxer and ask them particular questions? I read some of your articles about how you approach them and, and you pretty much sometimes in your articles, you teach other journalists how to do it. And I was wondering if you can, you know, maybe expand on that and, and uh, tell us about your techniques. Yeah. Well, first of all, you don't ask questions that they've been asked a million times before because they, they do get bored, especially at a high level. They do get bored. I have two goals 
in every interview, especially with uh, boxers at an elite level, um, either to ask them something and have them say, oh, that's a good question. I always work toward that. Or what I really love to hear is, wow, I've never been asked that before. I've never been asked that before. And suddenly they're engaged in the interview. And the other important thing to do is for Pete's sake, shut up. Shut up and listen. And I mean, really listen. Not think about what the next question you're going to ask them is. Listen. And I will say, as one of the very few female writers in the business, we have a lot of YouTube um, media, boxing media uh, women. Uh, and interestingly, a lot of women photographers who are absolutely superb, but as writers, there are just a handful of us. Um, I do think in many ways I have an advantage over some of my male counterparts. I'm not threatening. You know, I'm not, it's not about me. Um, first of all, I stand maybe five feet tall. So, you know, I'm one of the few people who can do an interview with Roman Gonzalez and actually look him in the eye. That's true. <laughs> you know, and then I interview someone like Tyson Fury and I'm like, <laughs> you know, <laughs> oh my God. And it is comical. Um, even I, I've done work with Dimitri Bivol and I've got a photo of me standing with him and I think, damn, am I really that short next to him? He's only about six, one or two. I mean, I'm like, well, okay, but I am, I'm not threatening. Um, there's not a lot of machismo. They don't have to, they don't really show off for me or mm -hmm. front me in the same way. And I do shut the F up and listen. And once they've talked to me, they, they get it. They remember me. And then my other advantage is, again, female, white, redheaded. <laughs> you know, I, I, I've got a lot in my name. I'm not named Jones or, you know, Thomas or something. So mm -hmm. I have a, assets in my own sort of personal brand, if you will, that once I've talked to them, I tend to stand out and be memorable. So I can't really screw up or I'm dead because they remember it. Like, you do, you yeah. do stand out from the crowd. So that's... <laughs> if you ever see photos of, you know, a scrum with media and there's like me right in the middle, it always cracks me up. <laughs> I have fooled a few people over the years to thinking that I'm Canelo's aunt or something, which really <laughs> cracks me up. And, like, no. and they, then they, they buy it and I'm like, no, yeah, no, no, no. <laughs> okay. It's okay. Um, uh, but yeah, I think that's the big difference. Um, the one I, there are two instances I really remember where I got a, a, an interesting story uh, we were on a conference call with Andre Ward. Andre Ward is a famously prickly interview. Um, Andre's a very smart man. He doesn't suffer fools. You know, sometimes he's in the mood. Sometimes he's not, okay? And he's just not. And he's sick and tired of being asked, hey, Andre, uh, what's your game plan for this fight? <laughs> Aspiring boxing writers or my colleagues out there, have you not learned don't ask a fighter what his game plan is or what he trained for. I know. What is he going to do? Hand over the game plan to his <laughs> opponent? What are you, are you stupid? Come on, stop asking that question, wasting everyone's time. Well, Andre's getting a, we're on a conference call with him actually. And um, he's, you know, he's already lit up a few people to that day. And I thought, <laughs> okay, well, I don't really want that to happen. Um, but it was prior to the Rio Olympics. And there was discussion about, are we going to let professional athletes 
compete in the Olympics in boxing because they do compete in many right. of the other events, right? You've got a lot, you know, you've got basketball, you've got a lot of professional names from around the world and the winter um, hockey players who we know, you know, you see Alex Ovechkin playing. Oh, yeah. Olympics like, this is great. That's really never happened with boxers. So you mm -hmm. think, to yourself, okay, well, why not? They no longer wear headgear. Mm -hmm. You know, should that happen? Well, here I am thinking about this conversation going on over here. And, and then here I am with the opportunity to ask somebody who really knows, who, who should have the most uh, knowledgeable response to this question. America's last Amer you know, Olympic gold medalist in boxing, male, you know, Clarissa Shields right. is the most recent, everybody. So don't say that Andre was the last one. It's Clarissa, and she will catch you and correct you, by the way, or I will. <laughs> and so I thought, let's ask Andre, you know, what do you think about this? You've been through the Olympics. You know, you watched all the other Olympians come and go after you. So I asked him that, and he paused, and he said, that is a great question. Wow. Let me, and next thing I know, I got a 10 minute answer out of him and I'm, you know, hogging up the call from the rest of, you know, the participants. Sorry, guys. That, that's what I want to do. I want to tie their insight about something to uh, the sport. What do they think? What's the, what have they learned? Um, you, you, and you also do that by knowing who they are and that takes research. You know, you can't come in cold. You have to learn something about them. You have to read their previous interviews or watch them interview or look at their social media and see you know, what's important to them. What do they talk about? The next um, instance, and I, I don't know, I don't think you were there at this one, um, but it was one of the last sort of small group uh, interviews that Gennady Golovkin did. Um, after his two fights with Canelo, it was prior to his fight with Steve Rolls. So there was a small media availability for him in Los Angeles. And uh, we were in fairly close setting. There were maybe two dozen of us total. And I actually got there late due to traffic. And you know what I'm talking about, Samir. Right, absolutely. Sure hell, right? And I get up there. Um, but he, I've interviewed him many times and he, he recognizes me, you know, there's that asset again. So we did our group and he did, did he went, did what he needs to do. He's very businesslike. He knows, you know, he knows what his obligations are. Um, and as they were leaving, um, he actually came around past me and, um, he looked a little weary to me. So I, didn't ask him, I didn't ask him an interview question. At that point, I looked at him and I said, I put my hand on his shoulder and I said, how are you doing? Mm -hmm. how, how are you doing? I don't, you know, I think it, the way it was spoken to him, I can't really repeat in the moment how it happened. He looked at me and suddenly the floodgates were open about, you know, he was just worn out. He was worn out from what the business end of things requires and the games and feeling like he got screwed over and you know the whole thing and he had his he had Sergey with him who I'm sure you know right great guy very familiar translator wonderful guy there's a guy who needs to do an interview he is fascinating by the way <laughs> he is he is an expert um, he's an academic he's a 
That's a, a good idea. I'll text he's him. He's a Soviet security academic. You know, you should talk to him. He's, a, I mean, Google his name is amazing. Anyway, so I stopped him and said, is this on the record? And I turned to Sergey and said, I, I just want it to be clear before I turn on a recorder of any kind. I just had it. I mean, I was just going to record on my phone. Mm-hmm. I just want to be clear that this interview is on the record. You know, can you just absolutely make sure? And, you know, get out of English is perfectly fine. <laughs> you know what I was saying, but I thought, no, I'm going to double check. Mm-hmm. I don't. That's another hard and fast rule in journalism. You can't at, say that this was off the record after the fact. A journalist, right. journalist doesn't honor that. So I just wanted to make it clear what the rules of the road were. And the next thing I know, I'm hearing a lot about where he was in his career, how he was feeling. And, you know, he's very close to the end and he was feeling pretty worn out. But he had done his thing for the rest of the room. They all bailed out. And here I am sort of lingering and, you know, got a bit of insight. But it goes back to the number one rule is when you do an interview, know something about the person, ask smart questions, ask, even ask weird questions once in a while, and then listen, really listen, not fumble around with your stuff, not look down, stop what you're doing and listen. You're going to hear something you can follow up on. And maybe it is a, a crazy question you ask. Um, we have a colleague, Albert Baker, who's become an absolutely superb filmmaker. His series is Under the Hand Wraps. I, I, I love his stuff, yeah. Great Albert's new channel. has got a very interesting personality, fun. Uh, the guys love him. He's very much a great guy, man of the people. And for a stretch of time, he started asking all these guys um, whether, you know, he would just say, Hawaiian pizza, yes or no? Now, <laughs> this is something people feel very strongly about. You know what I'm talking about. Hawaiian right. pizza is, you know, ham and pineapple on a pizza. And for the record, hell no, never, not a chance, no. Fruit does not belong on a pizza. I'm in that camp. But everyone has an opinion, right? Everyone has an opinion on this. And you start asking people at the end of every interview, okay, just have one more question for you. Hawaiian pizza, yes or no? And they would just go off. Suddenly you see the real person. And he started stringing together a series of questions about Hawaiian pizza, yes or no? Jesse Vargas, one of the most funny answers. Go find it. Great stuff. That's creativity. <laughs> that's, that's the creative process coming out versus Absolutely. I'm worried about clickbait and you know racking up uh, views on my YouTube channel. You know, that's okay. Um, I'll tell you who else is very good at it and who also tells an absolutely great story about his most infamous episode is Radio Rahim. Oh, I love that guy too. He's so go, talented. Go look up Joe Rogan. Joe Rogan, yeah, I saw that one. Radio Rahim, and he gets into the whole story about his most famous incident with Deontay Wilder, right. which ended up with the to this day meeting, right <laughs> but the smart thing that Raheem did is when that all got rolling which by the way turned out to be born from a misunderstanding mm-hmm. uh, Deontay misunderstood what he was being asked Raheem let him go he didn't stop him say oh it's not what I meant he he let it rip he he stood there he he shut up and let it happen and, you know, the guy is infamous for this now. 
<laughs> he should be selling t-shirts with his name on it, say to this day. And I think that's exactly what he did. I mean, he capitalized on that as well. And I mean, that was a great story by Radio Rahim and how he was like attacked afterwards. Uh, but yeah, and, and, and about uh, Gennady, uh, I read your article. It was great, you know. Uh, so, I, you know, you, you basically portrayed that story. So I was, it, it, it felt like a great insight. So that was, that was pretty cool. It goes back to your goal being storytelling. And it's not exactly. about you. Get out of the way. It's exactly. really my best piece of advice. Um, I teach college students, both undergrads and graduates, in public relations and writing and a variety of things. And I, I tell them two things. And it, one is about the need to really develop your writing skills and all these things we've talked about. Um, and get to the point. For Pete's sake, get to the point. My um, mantra to them in class is, it's got to be all killer and no filler. All filler, no filler. Get to it. I when, love it. Don't use a long word when a short one will do. Don't use a long sentence when a short declarative sentence will do. So, Gail, just wanted to bring something up as well. I remember during Joshua Ruiz, the second fight, the rematch, it was held in, uh, I think it was in, in Qatar or Saudi Arabia. I'm not sure. Saudi somewhere. Arabia. Yeah. Saudi Arabia, South, right. Southside Riyadh, Saudi Arabia. And, uh, and you've put out an article uh, basically criticizing the whole idea behind, you know, going to Middle East and, and uh, organizing a fight there. I was just wondering if, if you'd be able to elaborate on that and, and share uh, your opinions on that as, as well here again. Well, I understand that for Eddie Hearn and for Anthony Joshua and Andrew Ruiz Jr. and their entire teams, this was a business decision. Uh, it made them a lot of money. I, uh, I completely understand that. Uh, we've all heard that rationalization many times. I think sometimes, though, you really need to think very carefully about what you stand for and what your principles are. Just as just as I would not represent or work with somebody like a Billy Joe Saunders or an Adrian Broner. I just wouldn't do it. Um, I, would, I would not take a fight like that to a regime known for its abuse of its citizens, particularly its women, particularly its LGBT community. Um, Essentially, if you aren't male and Muslim, you've got a very, very hard life in Saudi Arabia. And for an American, a Mexican-American fighter to participate, boy, that, that's rough for me. Um, and it was very rough for me then to see American journalists choose to participate in this fight. Because then we do have a choice. Do we cover it? Do we travel there? Um, Eddie Hearn was asked about this, made assurances that everyone would be, be, be treated well, assured their safety. Well, that's nice because he, he bought his way in, right? And the Saudis are very eager to um, sports wash their political and human rights record by inviting big sports competitions. Uh, they've done this with Formula One racing and tennis and a few other things. And they want us to forget their record. And this also happened to be right in the midst of the absolutely horrific murder of Jamal Khashoggi. Um, not on Saudi soil, but uh, well, technically it was on Saudi soil. It was at the Saudi embassy in Turkey. For an American journalist, in the midst of that 
absolutely horrific um, scandal to then agree to go cover the fight, um, I had a problem with that. And certainly I had a, I had a problem as a woman going to that country. Um, you know, I, I thank you very much, Eddie, but I don't think you're going to follow me around all the time to make sure I'm okay. Um, if you encase us all in your little bubble and we get in and out, well, that's fine. And I, I did have colleagues who went, um, both male and female, a few. I chose not to participate in that. Did I cover the fight as a sporting event from back home? Yes. Um, but I made it very clear through the rest of my coverage where I was, that I was not there, and that I had issues with any legitimate journalist not backing off and making sure that no matter what we are saying about the athletic competition itself, we put it into the context of the Saudis are working very hard to scrub their record clean. And there's a lot of questions they haven't answered about how they behave. And no amount of exciting athletic competition is going to make anybody forget what's going on over there and insist they be called to account. And a lot of sports journalists say, you know, that's not our job to be culture police. Um, yes, for po politicians and others to handle. Uh, I think as human beings, that's still our role in telling the story to tell the whole story, not just the sporting competition, but the whole context of where it's taking place. And right now, I think boxing and combat sports in general are going to be some of the first things we see return. I mean, Samir, I really hope so. We're getting really hard <laughs> up wanting to see boxing, right? But we need to talk about it in the context of, is it safe? How's it being handled? Uh, those are going to be very important parts of the story. And we've just seen our buddy Dana White of the UFC try to pull off um, staging UFC 249. Um, he got pretty close but you know what when mickey mouse says no 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 you're not gonna do it um you know then he had to listen and disney, disney shut disney parent company of espn shut it down when do you think we're gonna be back with the sports because yes obviously just for the fact that how boxing works how the combat sport works it does not require as many people as you know a stadium for football or you know soccer or basketball do you think we can see a fight during summer uh, or september for example how long will it take before we actually see a fight? Uh, I do think it's going to be long before we get anything like the NFL or Premier League soccer finishing their um, season or even American baseball, I think might be the first major sport, team sport out of the gate. We'll see. Uh, but I think combat sports might beat that. You know, I would love to say as early as July or August, uh, June's a wash. You know, everything's going to be canceled. Um, there's still, I, I think the, I think the June 20th fight uh, with Joshua and Pulev is technically still on the calendar. But come on, who are we kidding? That's not happening. Yeah, I don't. Not in that venue. For I think sure. they pulled out from that. Yeah, I don't I think, think that's they're happening. done. So we're for sure, I think, gone from June. Mm -hmm. I think, I think a fight in July is going to be tough. Uh, I will hope to see it by Labor Day at least. And it would be 
sort of mind-blowing if the very first big fight out of the gate is Mexican Independence Day weekend between Canelo and Golovkin, the third fight. I mean, it's, it's all but inked and done, but not going to be announced just yet, and there, there's no reason to announce it. And I think it can absolutely be done um, once our uh, curve, our infection curve flattens a little bit without an audience in a studio setting. Because Samir, come on, you and I have both been to plenty of cards where for the first half of the uh, whole card, there's nobody there. It's pretty much you, me, the trainers, you know, (laughs) the judging crew, the announcers, and the the broadcasters. And maybe not even them if they're not really, you know, streaming anything. Gosh, it would be so weird to see a fight between Canelo and Triple G with no audience, though. Nobody there. Yeah, no kidding. (laughs) But, you know, the truth is for the fighters, they've all – had fights in front of nobody except their friends and family. And sometimes if they're out of town, it's not even that. When they're fighting the four and six round fights, let me tell you something. Ain't nobody in the stands that they don't know. Mm-hmm. <laughs> very, very rare. Now, for me, from my point of view, I love it. I love being one of three or 400 people in the MGM Grand Garden Arena or Madison Square Garden or the T-Mobile Arena. And seeing Diamonds in the Rough, the first appearance of somebody who goes on to do great things, I distinctly remember watching Devin Haney's American professional debut at age 17 in Nevada. And his entire gym buddies and family and friends, funny enough, sitting all around me which was a lot of fun. But there were three or 400 of us in there and maybe 150 of them were tickets he'd sold to, you know, his crew there in, in Las Vegas. It's, it's those sort of appearances. Um, Austin Amel Williams, uh, watching his debut and first few fights at four and six rounds. And by the way, all of you, Austin Williams, just I'm just saying, uh, pay attention. That w- that's a delight to realize you're seeing somebody you think, okay, they're going to be famous. Virgil Ortiz, same thing. First few fights, you realize, yeah, he's got it. It's, it's going to happen. Um, MJ Akhmedaliev, who had a huge amateur career. It's not like he was unknown. But his first few fights, Samir, come on. Nobody there. Right, of course. And, um, of course. you know, all of a sudden, he's, you know, the first of the, of the wave of guys, you know, out of um, Uzbekistan and, you know, the whole crew there. Um, he's the first one to get to this level, you know, achieving that uh, championship over Daniel Roman. I mean, it was crazy good. And to think about, okay, he's come that far that fast. Folks, you need to be in the stands early. I get it. You all want to be out at the bar with your pals. You're missing. You're missing out. So for the fighters, you know, it seems strange for fans and journalists. A lot of them are saying, oh, nobody in the stands. You know, it's not Doesn't that matter. big a deal. Look at the photo behind me, which is, you know, <sighs> taken before a lot of folks showed up um, at the MGM for the Tyson Fury Wilder 2 fight. It looks great, by the way. <laughs> nobody there. I didn't... I, I am not a photographer, full disclosure. <laughs> um, you know what? That's why you want to be in the arena sometimes is mm-hmm. um, 
for those early fights. So the last question for you, Gail, what would be the fight, the one fight, if we would be allowed to broadcast fights, to organize fights by the end of this year, you'd like to see? I think along with most of the other hardcore boxing universe, it's got to be Earl Spence Jr. and Terrence Crawford. Come on, folks. The big question is, how has Spence um, come back after he his recovered. horrible yeah. car accident? So he needs, he needs a tune-up fight. He does. I agree. I agree. Um, absolutely. And it's been uh, too long. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, that's the other issue about when are we going to see fights again? A lot of these guys are, are rusty. I mean, being yeah. in shape is one thing. They're not allowed to spar, uh, nor should they in this environment. And they're going to need, you know, I would think a minimum of eight to 10 weeks of really good training, maybe a get it done in six or a shade under eight if you're really in good shape. Um, Virgil Ortiz is training pretty hard with his dad. Um, you know, they don't have to worry about social distancing. <laughs> you know, he's fine. He's, he's working out. Um, I would bet we might see a fight like pro gray hooker come, come about. Um, but yeah, I, I think Spence and Crawford, I admit, I also love to see fury and Joshua. I think yeah, that's that would be fascinating <laughs> fight. And you know, that put 90,000 people in the seats at Wembley. I mean, it can't be anywhere else. Right amazing fight. Um, and you know, the truth is, uh, I'd like to see some of the other young rising talents, um, stepping up in competition and taking a challenge. Uh, I'm not going to name anyone in particular right now. Mm -hmm. Um, and, and as much as I enjoy watching and have enjoyed watching both Canelo Alvarez and Gennady Golovkin through their careers, I'm less than enthusiastic about a third fight. Uh, it is good, though, for boxing. It's good for boxing business. It's good to bring in a lot of fans, um, and I'd like to see that. And for Pete's sake, can we finally get Khabib and Ferguson eventually? <laughs> I mean, this Pete is a cursed sake, fight. I don't think we will ever see it. Cursed. It is cursed. Yeah, we're going to have to wait for that one, too. <laughs> Gail, thank you so much for being on my podcast. We spoke for almost one hour, 30 minutes, and it's been Ooh. amazing. It's well, like it's, it's just so good. You're a good questioner and you listen. There you go. <laughs> Thanks. Right. I really appreciate it. But it, I listen because it's so fascinating and interesting. You provide such a great insight on the boxing industry, not only from the perspective of journalists, but also from a business insider. And I, I, I really appreciate that content. I really appreciate that information. It's, I think it's useful for not just me, but everyone. Uh, I'm, I'm glad you enjoyed it. I hope anyone watching enjoys it as well. And if you would like to engage with me on social media, especially I would say boxing Twitter is the, the way to go. So my handle is PR Pro San Diego, which is where I'm based. PR PRO San Diego. That's it. And you're going to see me. And yeah, you know it's me. Although Perfect. I think I have a mask over my face and my <laughs> avatar right now, but um, that'll change as we all get get back and please stay safe everybody great thank you so much gail i appreciate it and stay safe as well thank you samir carry on thank you <laughs>